This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. If there is such a thing as the American literary canon, then Percival Everett is at the center of it. The author of over 30 novels, books of poetry, and short fiction, and children's literature. For over 30 years, Everett has been one of the great innovators of fictional forms. A reader of Everett's is just as likely to encounter a Western as a pastiche of academic discourse, and all wrapped up in a blistering comedic novel. Everett has never shied away from having it both ways. He is a writer of precision and care with language and postmodern metaplay, who takes those aesthetics into satirical romps, mysteries, and in the case of his most recent acclaimed novel, The Trees, a police procedural in the vein of Chester Himes. Perhaps the most distinguishing element of Everett's fiction has been his unwavering truth-telling when it comes to the still open wounds of racism in America. In our interview, we discuss how a novel about the history and present of racial violence, from the beginnings of lynching during Reconstruction to the present-day killings of unarmed black men and women by police officers, means something different in the Trump era. We open up the question of whether or not literary arts are capable of being catalysts to the kinds of change that other movements have failed to enact. And Everett talks about the importance of an adapting and growing archive of the names of those killed in lynchings or extrajudicial killings, a list of names that he has himself attempted to write down as an act of remembering. For those of you who don't already know and love Percival Everett, you've got a wonderful library of reading in front of you. I'm excited to share our interview. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burn by Books. It is an intimidating thing to introduce Professor Percival Everett 
His CV looks like the accumulated work of three men. Percival has 22 novels to his name, and that doesn't include his collections of short stories or his poetry, children's literature, or criticism. His many awards and fellowships include a Guggenheim, the Penn Oakland Award, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, Penn Center USA Fiction Award, the Dos Passos Prize, and the Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, just to name a few. He is currently Distinguished Professor of English at USC. While I cannot possibly claim to have read even a majority of his novels, I've taught erasure for many years now, and it is exemplary of what is most remarkable about Percival's fiction, its refusal to be any one thing. One of our great chroniclers of the complications and catastrophes of race in the United States, his novels work to unseat and demystify many of the assumptions about how power and capital are leveraged via absolute positions on the nature of blackness and whiteness. A chameleon in his voices and forms, Percival's novels are never the same tone or mood or vantage from one to the next. If there's a particular stylistic that announces his work, it is the steel-tipped boot to what is considered commonplace knowledge or the agreed-upon status quo. He takes on the sacred cows of culture, art, and politics, and always with a satirical bite that leaves a mark. It is impossible to talk about Percival's work without describing its sine qua non humor. Percival has a density of jokes and language play and absurdity in his novels to rival the best of prestige TV comedy. Think HBO's South Side, but with a heaping helping of dread always following any joke. And that gets me to the purpose of our conversation today, discussing his newest novel, The Trees a story of the nation's history of lynchings and its continued failure to address those past evils and their present manifestations. The Trees takes up with two black special officers who travel from Hattiesburg to Money, Mississippi, to investigate a series of murders of white men whose bodies are nearly decapitated by barbed wire and castrated. Beyond the gruesomeness of the crimes is the supernatural-seeming appearance and disappearance of the badly disfigured body of a black man who is found holding the genitals of the dead white men. There is even the suggestion that this disappearing body might be the ghost of Emmett Till, returned to take justice against those who killed him. If this description doesn't sound like a howler of a book, you probably haven't read any Percival Everett. The Trees is one of the funniest things I read all year, even if that humor feels like it comes with a cost. Ed and Jim, our special investigators, crack jokes about a Mississippi that seems not to have moved an inch from the 1930s, or as one character remarks, the 1830s. The officers wonder aloud in joking tones whether a white police officer who pulls them over might shoot them. Every joke in the book is followed swiftly by a slap in the face. The Trees is ultimately about the question of what kind of justice is possible in the world we've made from every manner of racist structure. Can a true archive of those who have been lynched or killed without reason be a form of justice? 
Or does the strange fruit of Billie Holiday's song of lynching become the seeds for bloody revolution? It is an honor to welcome Percival Everett to the show. Thank you, Chris. I was a, hope I can live up to that introduction. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start just by digging directly into the substantive core of the novel, which is thinking about lynching and its current manifestations. There is an older website, which is called Without Sanctuary, that catalogs photographs that were taken of lynchings and often horrifyingly repurposed as postcards or keepsakes by the white men and their families that came to watch these killings. In the trees, Mama Z, on a 105-year-old woman, has created her own catalog of every known lynching since the day she was born. Your novel is possessed with the idea of an archive of those killings, one that includes police killings in the 21st century. What does such an archive mean to you, and why did you want it to be the core of the novel? Well, uh, just, just the idea that, that history gets written, um, as the cliche goes, by the victors. I don't know if that needs to persist. When, when, we, when we archive the world, we retain it. It's hard to, to ignore the crimes when there is a record. History will write itself, and as we know, it often is wrong. Uh, and that's where art comes in. Whereas there may be nothing factual in a novel, it may well be true. Uh, likewise, in, in history or current events even, um, I can give you many, many facts that are in, in, in fact c correct, but no truth has been rendered. And um, so that's what's behind writing a novel about this. Yes, I, I'm thinking of uh, the well-reported aspect of the concentration camps in which uh, prison guards, German prison guards, told the people of the camps that they would not be remembered and their names would not be recorded. Yes. And I and I feel so much like that's that's going on here. Of course. Um, the cover of the trees is a haunting palimpsest of the names of real lynching victims. A character in the novel becomes obsessed with the idea of writing down each name from the archive of injustice and then erasing them to set them free. Were you at all interested in, in a kind of enacting of your own form of this kind of naming? Well, naming is, is, is tremendously important to us as a species. Um, uh, and I, I think, and that's true across the board of all cultures. And the writing down of things may well be more important to those of us in the West. But for me, uh, the the writing down of the names and i did this i i i did, I did what the character in the novel uh does and i did write down pages and pages of names i did not do what he does in the end which is to erase them which i do see as a as a final act of freeing um the individual from being a mere statistic and in erasing them how how does that change their statisticness uh, they don't serve anyone anymore. I realized as I was writing the names down as much as it affected me that um, there is an element of my using those those names to for my own understanding of the world. They've paid enough. Hmm. 
the trees hold many ideas and moods and genres and tension. It's a it's a Southern Gothic, a police noir, a satire. It's at times break your ribs funny, horrifyingly macabre, while offering a brutal assessment of the wages of historical sin. That tension between these dissonant ways of experiencing a story, I find to be a hallmark of much of your work. How did you develop this style, and do you find that it evolves and mutates depending on the subject matter? Well, the the, the novel tells me how how it should be written. Um, I don't. I can't say that I've developed a particular style that 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 might even um, suggest that 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 I understand it enough to teach it, which mm-hmm. I I don't. Um, what I do understand is that every story has its own voice. Um, if I do have a strength, is that I or a talent? It's, it's that I allow the story the voice it needs to tell itself. Um, but I have no no tricks, and I have no um, no particular tools that allow me to employ this when I want to. Were there particular authors when you were first? beginning to write fiction that you looked to and you found, if not things to to borrow, at least a certain kind of um, inspiration in the way that their um, form and structures uh, brought forth the subject of their work? Oh, so many. Um, I, I, I always mention, and, 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 I, and so it must be true, um, uh, Lawrence Stern's uh, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy mm. um, it, it has been enormously uh, inf- influential to me, uh, as well as Samuel Butler's The Way of All Flesh and, and Erwan, Chester Himes, and and the the movement of story of, of Zora Neale Hurston and, and things like Their Eyes Were Watching God. So so I find, and, and even works that I and of course, I can't leave out Mark Twain, who probably has done more to shape my sense of humor than hmm. than most writers. It's um, it's reading everything that 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 affects uh, the voice in which I write, even 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 when it doesn't look like the thing that I'm using. In my novel, God's Country, um, which is a parody of the Western, I I wanted to um, create a language that sounded like the Western, but that. I couldn't find any place else, and in order to do that, I had to learn another language. So I, I watched some 150, um, uh, you know, really bad pulp westerns and read as many um, novels until I owned it enough that I could change it. Mm. I love that, and and here in the trees, we've got a a, a police procedural slash noir uh, that has a very particular kind of of style of conversation and um, way of speaking, especially between the police officers and FBI agent. What was your prep like for that kind of um, dialogue? I think all of that, you and I and everyone else, we, we've, we've, we've um, sort of taken that in. We know that. Um, I watched every night for um, the time I was writing this, um, the old Perry Mason television show, uh. and and all of those those noir films, um, and the um, Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon, uh, th- that rhythm we know it very well. In the same way that we watch 
and movies knowing the formula and that and that again and the disruption of that formula is where as an artist i can get a lot of mileage mm -hmm. there's a moment in which mama z uh tells damon who's a, a university of chicago professor that the waitress gertrude has lured down to money mississippi that his work on racial violence is scholarly and that he has constructed it without an ounce of outrage. I feel like this novel wants to show what happens when the outrage of hundreds of years of unanswered murder and violence builds to the breaking point. Do you think the novel form is capable of handling outrage well? And, and by that, I mean, I, I feel like that that sort of violence that explodes out of outrage in some way art can contain it a little bit even as it shows us its possibilities and its and and its frightening potential outcomes uh two things what first um art can only do so much um uh, the fact that we can have a national um, public outrage for 10 days and then forget whatever it was that made us upset is alarming um, mm. and that and it happens all the time uh, one story supplants another so th there's a there's a kind of a attention deficit disorder that our culture practices that in a way doesn't allow uh, art or the news to affect our long-term outrage about anything that's a great sadness for me um the other thing is is that um let me let me see if i can phrase this in, in some way when when you when you sell a novel <laughs> you have to realize that you're not affecting that many people uh it would be nice it would be nice if literary novels were uh on on sale in the aisle at the grocery store along with the candy bars and and everything else and people would just pick them up but if you sell let's say uh 50,000 novels, which is a lot of novels, mm -hmm. you're doing fantastically. If I were to make a, um, a CD of music, that's how old I am, I talk about CD. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, of music and sold 50,000 units, I would never record again. Mm. Literature is, is, is not at the, at the, the center of, of, of our culture's artistic um, gaze. And um, and part of my job is, is 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 to position it better. I'm failing miserably, but I'm still trying. <laughs> do Do you feel like that by because many of your I would call all of your novels that I've read quite literary in the sense of the conventions of aesthetic beauty and the the care with language but you're almost always as you say borrowing and changing aspects of what might have been called you know five or ten years ago genre fiction do you think the by doing that there's any way that you're expanding the novel's purview giving it a little bit more of that supermarket aisle possibility apparently not um, um no I, I don't think about it about that i don't think about audience at all either um i just try to tell the story I, if my line about thinking about audience who who are you writing for people will ask me and, and i say i have to write for myself there are as many ways to read a story as there are people to to read it and um and if i think about 
pleasing anyone, then I'm then I'm frozen. So I, I'm just trying to entertain myself and, and have fun with the philosophical ideas that, that, that haunt me. I wanted to follow up on this idea of our short attention span, and, and that is thinking about the, the era of George Floyd, um, which has brought to prominence actually uh, many, many major academic works on on systematic racial violence. They have been matched with a, a movement, principally BLM, but but other uh, other components joining it that is ordered, but also outraged. Still, together, as as you said, these two forces have not managed to change a single law on policing or or voting or treat or the treatment of race in schools. Uh, and this may be partially about that short attention span um, or something else. Is it revolution that comes next in your mind? Certainly, that's where the novel um, leads us, or perhaps to a period of of worsening violence and vigilantism. Um, well, I'm I'm no I'm I'm not an exponent for for violence of any kind. The um the 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 current atmosphere of, of this country is there are a lot of uh, you know, racists have their swag back. I'll put it that way. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It used to be that, um, uh, and I, when I say used to be, I mean uh, maybe 30 years ago, that it, even racists understood that their behavior was abhorrent and would try to hide it. Um, you know, but they, and they would be racist and they would do racist things, but they understood the behavior was objectionable. Uh, with the um, the introduction of a certain figure into our culture, uh, it's no longer uh, considered abhorrent behavior. It's we're racist and we're proud. Now that has always existed in a in a, in a very small minority in the culture. Um, at one point, it was a great majority, but uh, through much of my the second half of my adulthood, at least there was a pretense that there was an understanding that such behavior was wrong. Um, that seems to be gone for a lot of people now. <sighs> Violence, unfortunately, uh, small-minded people, such as the people I'm talking about, are prone to violence because they are desperate and they feel helpless. They're uneducated, and that doesn't mean they haven't gone to college. That just means they're uneducated. Mm-hmm. They haven't been trained to think, and their 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 desires in the world to to use what they have learned is fairly one-dimensional. How can I get richer? How can I um, stand on the shoulders of someone else? It's not a good thing. Um, but I am a fiction writer. I'm a novelist. To look to me for any kind of uh, wisdom about the world is, is, I mean, I've chosen to write fiction for a living. Uh, that's that's evidence enough that I'm, I'm uh, intellectually and, 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 and deficient. Um, but, and so, and so I just make the art, it'll do what it does in the world and, and we'll see what happens. Well, one of the things that it does do is take, uh, up what is the incredible irony of race. That is that bioanthropologists have for decades, if not longer understood race as a cultural construct, and yet it's impossible to understand any aspect of American life or history outside of the preeminence of race. 
you satirize the idea of being black enough or too black. Why have you been so drawn to this contradiction of race as both a construct and an absolute? Well, as you as you say, it 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 it, it, it there is there is not a, a work of art uh, created in the United States of America that does not is not influenced by the idea of race. Even a work that claims that it is not has chosen to ignore something that affects everyone in this country, and therefore it is a statement about some kind of um, racial existence and. and within the society. It's, it's a bogus category that exists. That's fascinating to me. There is no such thing as race, but it affects everything we do in the United States and therefore the world. Uh, that's, uh, that's fascinating. On, on a purely intellectual level, that's a wonderful puzzle. Yeah, and it's a it's a puzzle you certainly play with in in many of your novels, and I I wonder if you feel like art is the thing that allows us to maybe move past that um, that contradiction. Is there a way to understand um, that that both things are true, but also to um, for art to take up the 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 abstract nature of this construction of, of race that's different than the way we're dealing with it now in political spheres. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a, a dumb writer. Uh, it's, it's certainly the case that um, we've, we've conflated the idea of race with the idea of difference. Uh, people say that they're colorblind, and that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> it, it, it makes no sense at all to me. If somebody robs you, you describe him, and one of the one of the descriptors might well be uh, his or her color. Uh, that's not racist in and of itself. Um, we are we 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 appear differently in the world. I'll describe the color of someone's hair if they if to, to the police if they've taken my laptop. Um, that's that's fine, um, but th it's the idea that to get past racism, one has to get past seeing people. Is is um that's, that gets in the way of of, of of honest interrogation. Your character Gertrude, um, who I'll admit to have sort of fallen in love with reading the book, she's such an appealing character. She's known hilariously as Dixie at work appears your number <laughs> appears to some as white and some as black uh, a policeman says she may have a drop in her with the assumption being that a drop of black blood makes you black and we later learned that a key white character was the product of an affair with a black man who was himself later lynched how does the concept of mixing and mixed race complicate the irony of racial constructs in your work? Well, I grew up in the South, and 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 uh, everybody's mixed. Uh, there, there's a wonderful story about Pitchfork Ben Tillman, who was a racist uh, politician in the state of South Carolina, 19th century. Uh, South Carolina is the only uh, Southern state that never adopted the one-drop rule. Um, that. The rule, the one you just mentioned, that if you have one drop of black blood, you are therefore black. Um, 
in a room at the University of South Carolina, he told other like-minded uh, racist South Carolinians that they could never adopt that rule. And they couldn't because if they did, not one of them would be able to own land. Hmm. There was an admission even there that everyone, in, in, in the, in, at least in the South, was, was probably mixed. Um, there is a, such a range of appearance of, 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 of um, black Americans. And, and, and often people are, uh, you know, tw- what is it? What is it? 20, 23 and me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, that's yeah, right. They, people discover all sorts of things they didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it, it, it's bad science, but at least it has <laughs> people thinking about, about this stuff. Yeah, I remember very vividly uh, Oprah discovering that she was not of Zulu ancestry and it and it being a a real devastation to the sort of story that she, you know, and her family told of themselves. And and similarly, I think your South Carolina historical anecdote shows us that those stories that we tell each other, especially about race, are so much more complicated. Are you, did you uh, let's back up so she, she thought she had zulu heritage i i believe that was the case i think that was wow. the controversy controversy wow. i guess she never looked at a map <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh there worse things can be said of, yeah. <laughs> of many of us <laughs> Um, for my money, I, I think you stand with with maybe a handful of writers as one of the funniest American novelists. I think of you alongside Paul Beatty, Kevin Wilson, Marcy Demansky, Gary Steingart, and a few others who are truly in control of their humor in fiction. But that humor in your novels, um, especially in The Trees, is staggering in its satire of systematic racism and racial violence. It conjures almost a a nausea with the laughter, in my case, the feeling that I have no business laughing at it. Your two protagonists, Jim and Ed, are black cops trying to survive their visit to Money, Mississippi, and they're constantly bantering in in one-liners and puns and put-downs. They're part of a system of unequal justice that might just as well eat them up if they didn't have a small modicum of authority within it. Why did you want Jim and Ed to be the center of the novel and the center of the comedy of the novel? Well, uh, I have to apologize because I suffer from what um, we in my house call work amnesia. And I simply don't remember a lot of the decisions I made making it. They seem to be a natural, um, since they're investigating the crimes, they seem to seem to be uh, sort of naturally placed for me to discuss everything. Um, and they also, and I was seeing, I think it's probably quite obvious that I was also alluding to um, Gravedigger Jones and, and Coffin Ed of the Cotton Comes to Harlem novels of Chester Himes. Uh, maybe not as as um, as rough as those guys, but but um, they were in my mind. Yeah, it, it, being the investigators, they get to move around, and and that and that was necessary for the book. I I think it's fascinating that whenever they introduce themselves as the special investigators or special police, they they say as an aside, uh, "We're cops and we hate cops," and that's a very interesting um, 
irony or or problem within the in the book how do you how do you think about that kind of tension within their own career choice and their own ability to wield power well i'm a professor and i hate professors so uh, <laughs> um I, I think it if you want to be a good if 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 you're a good citizen to your your society let's let's imagine it's it's um it's 14 1453 uh you go and you fight in your battles um, uh, to, to keep to keep your your small territory alive and afloat. But you find out what soldiers are like in this world, and you don't like them. But you must still do what you can to protect your world and your and, and your life. And I think that's often um, that's how these two characters see their position in in the um, MBI. Yeah. They if they weren't present, there would be no one to stand with. Mm, that's a, a really illustrative example. I wanted to, um, moving back to to the humor of this novel, I, I wondered if you would share a little section that I found particularly funny. Um, it's Jim and Ed having um, discovered a diner in Muddy in Money, Mississippi, that they that they end up going to many times, and they're served by the intriguing Dixie. Um, would you, Would you read that section, starting with Jim looked at the waitress's name tag? Jim looked at the waitress's name tag, Dixie. For some reason, I, I don't think that's your name. And you'd be right, she said. Dixies get better tips than Gertrude's. Well, Gertrude, you seem appropriately out of place here, Jim said. I'm hoping we seem out of place too. Well said, she said. And what will you have? How's the chili, Jim asked. Do you like chili? Yes, I do. Then you will hate the chili here. Catfish or burger? Cheeseburger, Jim said. Do you like cheese, Gertrude asked. <laughs> Burger, wise choice. And what about you, she asked Ed. Catfish, coming up. She turned and walked back to the kitchen. She's cute, Jim said. May I remind you that we're in Money, Mississippi. Maybe I should say that again, Money, Mississippi. The important part of that word, that is the word Mississippi. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the 21st century, Jim said. Yeah, well, tell that to those fuckers back there in Trump caps. At least there's some color in this joint. I mean, besides us, Jim looked at the walls. They were covered with photos from the 50s and 60s and old tin can, pro and old tin product signs, knee-high soda, blue ribbon biscuit mix. There were also weirdly colorized photographs of Elvis Presley and Billy Graham. So are we cliches too, Jim asked? No, we're dinosaurs, but we're not cliches. Gertrude came back with the food. That was fast, Ed said. Luckily, we'd already caught the catfish, she said. So what are you two doing here in money? I hate to tell you, but we're cops, Jim said. Why do you hate to tell me? Jim sipped some coffee and put down his mug. Because people either love cops or hate them. It's been my experience that most the most interesting people hate them. Hell, I'm a cop and I hate them. Me too, Ed said. I especially hate them. Hate myself too on occasion. So you think I'm interesting, Gershoe said to Jim. Jim caught, looked at Ed, then said, I guess that's right. I'm going to get you some extra fries. I'm telling you to be careful, Ed said. I can't help it if I exude charm. Well, do me and yourself and maybe Dixie there a big favor and try not to do too much exuding. I'll do my best, Jim said. You just control your intake of fatty foods. Thank you so much. 
Um, I, I love this section. It's it's really funny. It captures that sort of like diner and and cop banter so so beautifully. But as I mentioned about so much of the the humor that you use, there's always this sort of roiling roiling conflict and and fear and sometimes disgust underneath. And here, what's being discussed, and this is before they they feel like they've sort of outed Gertrude as black herself, but there's this idea that if they're caught um, in some way uh, kind of romantically inclined towards this waitress, that they could be in real physical trouble. And we're not talking about, you know, 1950. We're talking about the present day. And I wonder if you, you feel like that's... Um, that's really the sort of present circumstance of a place like Mississippi. Um, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a weird world. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's somebody out there who could be upset, and you, and you have to be aware, aware, aware of that. Um, the, the, the really strange thing is that most crazy um, racists have someone black in their family. They have a cousin who's married to a black man or a black woman. It's, 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 not, un, it's not unusual to them. Racism is f- far more complicated than I think it, it used to be. Um, it, a lot of it comes down to people wanting to be winners. They want to be right hmm. um, without doing the work. That's why lotteries are, are, are so uh, popular. And that's why Donald Trump is, is, is popular. Poor, a, lot of, a lot of Trump supporters see themselves as unlucky rich people. If things had gone just a different way, they would have been Donald Trump. You know, and he he also mirrors their taste. He they would live the way he lives. Lotteries are, and this is why these people hate uh, education. They hate universities. They call um, anyone who is educated elite. It's because you can become rich overnight if you win the lottery. You can't become educated overnight. There's a commitment of time. There's 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 a a, a a great deal of thought that goes into the decision to 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 participate in the world in that way, and it's frightening. And I understand a lot of this stuff is just fear, and and I try to have compassion for that. It must be terrible to be afraid like that. The fact that they can't understand that when I see blue lights flashing in my rearview mirror, that I'm filled with terror, um, <laughs> notwithstanding. Um, it's, 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 it's not a good thing to live in the world with fear. And a lot of these people do. Speaking of that, um, uh, the reaction to say, Black Lives Matter amongst tr- Trumpers, I guess that's what they're called. They react against it not because with with the often with the expression well all lives matter well i i heard a, a british comedian actually have something wonderful to say about that he would say uh, he said uh and i can't remember what it is i'm paraphrasing and i may be completely in a different um uh realm of metaphor but if you say that if you say save the whales um then the response is well what about the minnows <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, well, when people are going out in ships catching minnows, <laughs> uh, yes, then, then maybe that's a, a valid argument. I don't want the only thing I want, and 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 the whole idea of white guilt about slavery and and Jim Crow, 
I don't want that. I, I don't. I don't care whether. And this is the. I don't care whether anyone feels guilty or not about what's happened to black people in America. The only thing that I would like is for white people to recognize the feeling that, just for example, that a black man has when a cop approaches him. Nothing else. Just to appreciate the fact that there is fear. Now, that doesn't mean that all cops are bad. But if I told you there was one landmine in a, in a parking lot, would you go into the parking lot? Hmm. Yeah. I sort of ranted there. Sorry. No, you didn't. You didn't. And you, you gave one of the best explanations of the power of the Trump movement that, frankly, I've heard. Um, and also the the irony that that people who are clearly deeply afraid and, and afraid of what their position is in, in this country cannot see other people's fear or separate themselves from from that fear. Um, from, you know, as they, as they dodge their own landmines, unwilling to see that other people are, are having to step carefully. Um, but I know, I, I, I think you described it so well. I, d I don't know if you know the, there's an amazing, um, Chicago bookstore, the seminary co-op bookstores. I do know. Um, yes. are, are you, uh, I love it. I think it's a great, um, place and, um, and I learned that the purchasing director there, uh, Meghna Candler, heard that I was interviewing you and she was excited to pass along a, a question about your visual arts career. So this is um, Meghna's question. I've heard that the publication of The Trees was accompanied by a gallery show of paintings that address and respond to the same subject matter as the novel, Lynching in the U.S., how did your art-making practice as a painter inform your practice as a writer and vice versa? Did the two take shape simultaneously or did one precede the other? And what was it about the particular and notably difficult subject matter that spurred you to explore it through a variety of mediums? Well, I, I, when I was finished with the novel, I, I, I've been painting for, for a while and, and generally my, my work is, is, is abstract and i finally embraced that term because i don't like the term non-representational um, but i also don't like the term abstract because it suggests that i'm abstracting something and usually i'm trying to not do that um, but with with this material i realized that i wasn't finished with it and and i tried to um, see if i could uh, abstract if not and I didn't use any specific images. I just um, abstracted specific shapes to the my idea of lynching, and um, and so these 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 paintings sort of sprang forth. And um, and I'm lucky. I have a very good gallerist named Margot Ross, who um, who is very encouraging. But she she recognized the uh, the work immediately, and and so we put together the show. I didn't know about um, your your life as a painter until this question came to me, and then I went on online and saw the online gallery shots, and they're really extraordinary paintings, and their abstraction is very powerful, and more I feel like direct and angry and mournful than the novel, and I wonder if those. Um, 
those are two kinds of ways in which you approach this subject. Your your novel voice, which has a lot of comedy and lightness mixed with its gruesomeness and and sorrow, and then a kind of um, angry and sorrowful life on the canvas. I I, I don't know. Um, I just I, I I just make it and shut up. <laughs> Well, we're going to. Um, I, I'm going to post the a link to the gallery on the website, and I really encourage my listeners to um, to look at the paintings because they're a remarkable companion to the novel. Um, because of your uh, your novel, I am not Sidney Poitier, but also um, the way in which he has shown up in other works, including The Trees. I wonder um, if you would talk, given his recent passing, a little bit about why Poitiers is is important to you and, and for your work. Well, I, I don't know if I can honestly say that, that Poitiers has been important um, for my work, but he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a fascinating figure, you know, obviously a, a wonderful movie star, and I, and, and I, and I do mean movie stars. Um, there are those actors who who are themselves and 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 just they're large on a screen. Um, Humphrey Bogart, uh, Sidney Poitier, um, people like um, Robert De Niro, um, and um, but at the time of, of Poitier's em- emerging as a as a star, he seems like he seems antithetical to the figure that white America would want as a representative for black, for, 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 for black. He's tall, dark, good looking and articulate. You know, this, uh, after, um, you know, the screen presence of people like, uh, step and fetch it and, and, um, and Louise Beavers and, and, and those actors who were, I'm sure fine actors, um, to have him emerge in this way, but to be the only one is what fascinates me. Mm. Why America likes to give a seat to one person from some minority one at a time, it seems. But why Sidney Poitier? Why not Harry Belafonte? More importantly, why not both? Both fine actors, mm. mm-hmm. uh, both both uh, clearly uh, of African ancestry, both from the islands and so um, from the Caribbean. Uh, why one and not the other? Why not both? But there's other actors at the same time. Uh, why only Sidney Poitier? Uh, could America only handle one black star? So that's fast. That became fascinating to me, and it didn't affect Poitier in ways that I that I would find objectionable. You know, it didn't make him seeing his being anointed as making him special, which he obviously is anyway. Um, but he was very active in the in the civil rights movement. He was he was outspoken. He didn't recede and simply stand by and enjoy the acceptance of white America that he did, that he had. Uh, so he's a fascinating figure to me. He's being sort of remembered. I think it's you raise the important point of of why he was such the singular um, black actor figure at that time um, and what that what that meant. In fact, I will mention one role of his, mm. um, and he plays the overseer on a on a plantation in a film called um, Band of Angels, which is based on a Robert Penn Warren novel. 
stars Clark Gable and um, Yvonne DiCarlo. The Sidney Poitier that we all know and see that is made safe and desexualized in films appears there as a really menacing figure, unlike the Sidney Poitier we see in subsequent work. And it's, it's a remarkable performance. He's very young. I haven't seen it. I'll have to I'll have to check it out. It sounds very different from his his typical roles for sure. Um, so I always like to end just asking to hear a little bit about what are the things you're reading right now and who are you finding um, inspires you? Because I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a semester, I, I'm rereading, I'm teaching my a film course on the Western. So I've been rereading um, The Searchers and another Alan LeMay novel called uh, Painted Ponies. These are Westerns and, and, I, and I suppose it's work reading because I, I talk about them in class. But I have a renewed um, respect for the treatment of Native people in the LeMay novels, simply because they don't fall into the same traps as, as so many of the Western of, of um, dehumanizing. And I've also been rereading the, the Existentialists, a lot of Simone de Beauvoir. And um, though I don't like it, I, I just reread um, Nausea, um, mm. the uh, Sartre novel. Did you have you read the Sisters Brothers? A while ago, yes, um, and it's it's very funny. I I love that. I think it's hysterically funny, and I you know you talked before about um, you know wanting to kind of digest the the classical genre form so you could change it. And I feel like he's really um, wonderfully playing with um, the genre and and transmuting it uh, to his own style. Yeah, that, and that was done also very well by Dr. Rowe in Hard Times, but but also, and I, I'm trying to remember the title of the novel, Robert Coover wrote a Western that I think is uh, perhaps one of my favorite uh, corruptions of the form. And what's it called, the Coover? I wish I could remember the title. I want to say it's... For some reason, Ghost Town is jumping into my head, but I don't think that's it. Well, I'll look it up because I'm gonna um, I'm gonna put these on uh, the website with links to to find them. Um, and I just want to say, uh, Percival Everett, thank you so much. Uh, this was a real honor to get to talk to you, and congratulations on on yet another incredibly well received novel. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Have a great day. You too. Well, that's all from me today. My deepest gratitude goes to Percival Everett for spending time with me for this interview. I won't soon forget it. Also to Meghna Candelar for her thoughtful question for Percival. And thanks, as always, to the listeners of this show. You can find links to all the previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and always at burnedbybooks.com. Leave a rating for the show at iTunes or Spotify to help me draw more listeners. I'll be dropping new and exciting episodes in the coming weeks, including Joanna Rakoff and Sochil Gonzalez, and many more. This has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.